that we may love things heavenly and even now while we are placed among things that are passing away. Hold fast to those things that shall endure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. The parable of the dishonest steward. That might have been a great passage to preach on for the the first Sunday after the launch of a capital campaign. They get people to think about how to make, you know, friends ahead of time, the people who've gone before us and invested so wisely and, and so well, and just think about what you're doing with your gain, whether it was dishonest or honest, maybe redeem it. By, but the more I thought about approaching this day and realizing that my friend Ben Lane wouldn't be at the organ, and never would it be there again in this earthly pilgrimage, I just couldn't bring myself to come to talk with you about money. Just couldn't do it. And then I found myself going back to uh, today's epistle. Last week, we learned from the epistle in the paragraph before that Paul had because of the light on the road to Damascus, had learned repentance. Because of the faith that was in Christ and then given to him, he had found a legacy. And then because of the love that he found in Jesus that wasn't in himself, but that he learned through Jesus, well, he learned to love. And then I found myself looking ahead in the letter and realizing here in this chapter, chapter 2, he begins to talk about the things that are important to him and his legacy. And I realize this is Ben's legacy. First of all, the, the first thing he wants to talk about is worship. And the first thing he wants to talk about in worship is prayer. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. And the thing that we are all about, and the thing that no one has done more to shape us in, is worshipful prayer. And that's what Ben Lane taught us. And so I want to offer three observations from this passage, three reflections on worship as prayer. So indulge me if you, if you please. First, worship is prayer, not mere entertainment. Though it should engage heart and soul and emotions, and and even though worship should do everything that good theater does, whether comedy or tragedy, raising you to the height of life's promises and 
taking you to the depths of life's despair. Nonetheless, worship is not here just to play to sentiment, just give you a happy place to escape what's out there. The music isn't there to numb you, distract you, just make you feel good to be you. Music is, as U2's frontman Bono says, music is worship. Whether it's worship of women or their designer, the world or its destroyer, whether the prayers are on fire with a dumb rage or dove-like desire, the smoke goes upwards. The first thing I noticed when I began, when I came into this place, well, okay, the second thing, the architecture was like overwhelming and you're facing this way, but then the music starts. And then I turn around and go, I'm like, where's that beauty coming from? And there's an X factor here. It wasn't just beauty for beauty's sake. It, it was an excellence that was designed to lay a bed for people's worship. I've never experienced congregational corporate song being led more effectively than by Ben and, and the choir because they weren't about to show. They were about what we were about, lifting our voices in prayer. And notice, notice, week after week, the prayerfulness of the hymns. Today, we come in. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. Join the great throng, psaltery, organ, and song, sounding in glad adoration. what we'll sing on the way out today. Holy Father, great creator, source of mercy, love, and peace, look upon the mediator, clothe us with his righteousness. Heavenly Father, through the Savior, hear and bless. For 28 years, Ben Lane shaped us in that. And in that, his heart is the heart of the Apostle Paul. Worship is first, and, and worship is first of all prayer. Second, worship is prayer, not mere education. Now, I'm not talking as a former Presbyterian who's, who's learned that sermons aren't supposed to run 45 minutes. I'm talking about the fact that while the whole service is educative, is aimed at what Moses called loving the Lord with all your mind, and what the apostle calls the renewal of the mind, the whole cast of it is one of prayer, not of lecture. Think about this difference. Where I came from, it was it was a valid Eucharist, or we tended to call it communion or the Lord's Supper. 
it was valid if three things happened. One, you told people nothing magical was happening here. Two, however, if you come in an unworthy fashion, you just might die. And three, you'd say the words of institution reporting what happened 2,000 years ago. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Think about, think about how different the whole thing is when it goes more like this, when we get to that place. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And then we give thanks to the Father for creation and for the gift of His Son. And then when the words themselves are offered, they're, they're offered themselves as part of the prayer. On the night He was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when He had given thanks to you, addressing the Father, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, take, eat. And then when we join our prayers at this table to the prayers of the angels and archangels that we know that we are surrounded by, and with all the saints who have gone before us, we set this table in a larger setting. And then when we reflect the fact that we know that it's not enough just to tell people what's going on, but to ask the Lord to come and for the Holy Spirit to fall and to be God's presence among us to sanctify the bread and the wine, that in them we may truly feed on Jesus. We make this not just a horizontal transaction, but a vertical transaction where the table, this place becomes a thin place where heaven and earth converge and where we have to leave changed. It's why we have prayer ministers at communion. It's why we have this part, a partnership with this amazing prayer ministry, Inheritance House, that our sister, Deacon Rose Sapp, heads up, and appointments for prayer needs are available. So, worship is prayer. It's not mere entertainment. Worship is prayer. It's not mere education. And third, worship is prayer. It's not recruitment for a political or social cause. Worship forms people to think deeply, to serve diligently, and to care passionately for their fellow citizens. Worship forms people to seek the common good and to be prepared, as Paul says to Titus in, the, in a letter that he wrote at the same time as this, not just to obey political authorities, but to take their place in the public square and to be ready for every good work, Titus chapter 3, verse 2. Paul even goes on to say, and it might be listened to a little bit more carefully these days, he even goes on to say how you take your place in the public square, to speak evil of no one. What? That's how you make political capital, right? No! People who are shaped by prayerful worship go into the public square determined to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, 
to be gentle and to show courtesy to everyone. Paul wrote this in a climate in which people who had the means and the know-how to govern cities were giving up on the cities and retiring to their country estates when city politics were as vicious and cutthroat as you could possibly imagine, and when Christians themselves were on the verge of becoming a persecuted minority. Invest in the good of your city out of winsomeness and care. And in fact, our brothers and sisters in the second and third century, many of them were martyred because of their principled stand based on today's epistle passage. Pray for those in authority, pray for kings, but don't pray to kings. And so they said, after, the, after a fashion, friends, we will serve the empire. We will seek the good of our cities. When you abandon your unwanted babies on the hillsides, we will gather them and raise them. When returning armies bring the plague, we will tend the sick, even if our neighbors flee. And yes, we will pray for the emperor. But no, we will not pray to the emperor. We will offer incense for the emperor, but no, we will not offer incense to the emperor. Jesus is Caesar. Jesus, let me <laughs> um, pause, back, delete. Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. So, worship is not the Republican Party at prayer or the Democratic Party at prayer. It is citizens of the kingdom of Christ at prayer, which is why the first words that we say after our processional hymn in, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be His kingdom now and forever. Amen. Both Old Testament and New Testament voices teach us that there are sinister forces of darkness that have set themselves against the flourishing of the human race. Somebody has got to name them. Somebody has got to go to the God who cares and the God of power and ask him to take the victory won at the cross and apply that now. Lord of hosts is one of God's names, and it means God of armies. Daniel spoke of Israel's champion angel Michael confronting Persia's king angel. Paul says there were powers and principalities arrayed against human flourishing. And it takes only a little bit of the reading of history to make you wonder if there are depths of human cruelty and folly that have been inspired by malevolent spiritual forces to be resisted with human force, to be sure, but also, we believe, with voices raised heavenward. We understand that public policy is ambiguous, fraught with unintended consequences. We understand that every social issue is complicated in need of every bit of human wisdom and, and, and frankly, more. 
but we also understand that hearts are out of sync with God and that there are generational cycles of poverty and violence, of greed and rapacity that may be broken, that, that must be broken so that we may, as Paul says here in our passage, live a peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. And that's why early in our worship, we lay our hearts out and say, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your name. And that's why in verse 3 of today's sequence hymn, we sang, Give us, O God, the strength to build the city that hath stood too long a dream. We pray, and then we build. And the fact is, we bring to table what the world cannot bring for itself. The Bible calls us a kingdom of priests. And what priests do is they bring the aches of the people to God. We bring the world to the seat of mercy. And so before we build, and that we may build well, we intercede for its brokenness, for its desolation, its wounds. We plead for its wretched and its abandoned. We beg mercy for the proud and the predatory. We join Christ in taking its pain into ourselves, and we cannot get through that crucible without being changed ourselves. And that's why one of our prayers is open our eyes to see your hand at, the wor at work in the world around us. And it's why typically our deacons are the ones who lead our prayers of the people. It's they who are called to call us to care for its needs, to interpret to the church the needs and concerns and hopes of the world. And that's why whether you especially like to hear their names or not, we pray by name for our governing officials. Now, every once in a while, somebody will come through the breezeway and say, I hate it when you say so-and-so's name. And I'm going like, well, um, and, you know, for eight years, it may be somebody's name, and for another eight years, it may be somebody else's name. And if you have to file that under love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so be it. And if you hate that name, that's all the more reason to pray and to ask God to work. We, we pray so that justice may prevail and folly may be frustrated, that mercy may rule and that evil may be thwarted, that sloth and lack of concern may give way to righteousness and truth. So, a lot of what our, the, the legacy of our brother Ben Lane has been is to teach us and has given me the opportunity to reflect more deeply on worship as prayer, not mere entertainment, not mere education, and not recruitment. 
And I'm so grateful for that. So grateful to be able to do that with and among you. What a legacy. What a legacy we've been given. What a legacy we have to offer. But I lied. I have four points, not just three. (laughs) Worship is prayer, finally, because it's joining our hearts with the heart of Jesus. Paul, in our passage, represents Jesus as the one mediator between God and humankind. And so, once on earth, he interposed his blood. Now, in heaven, he interposes his prayers. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it in chapter 7, verse 25, he ever lives to intercede for us. What that means is that when we pray, when we worship in prayer, we participate in his ongoing ministry to mediate, to carry, to identify, to heal all that's wrong in the world and all that weighs so heavily on your own heart. In worship, as prayer, from top to bottom, we approach the throne of grace with Jesus our high priest himself, with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To him be the glory and praise now and forever. Amen.